Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Today, the journalist Alex Koch talks about the Koch-funded academic network, and the political economist Alfredo Sadfilo updates us on the political and economic crisis in Brazil. First, the Koch brothers and their campus network. Recently, some writers in the left have been arguing that we're paying too much attention to academic politics, which is somehow a distraction from real politics. It's amazing how little liberals and leftists have learned from the long-term success of the right. Reactionary philanthropists led by the infamous Charles Koch and his family foundation have had their eyes on transforming academic discourse for years. They've created a vast network of institutes, think tanks, and scholars to promote their cause. My guest of several weeks ago, the historian Nancy McLean, has gotten a taste of its breadth and power. Her book, Democracy in Chains, is an examination of that right-wing scholarly network. Over the last couple of weeks, she's been relentlessly attacked by the Koch-funded network she criticized. The journalist, Alex Koch, a freelancer when he wrote his articles mostly for Alternet and now a reporter for International Business Times, has been investigating these reactionary academic warriors. Here he is to report. Alex Koch. Welcome, Alex. I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, the attacks on Nancy McLean after her book came out. Quite a cast of characters with very similar critiques. Um, as someone who studied this Koch network, uh, what did you make of this? Well, you know, it wasn't surprising that a lot of the people who benefit from the Koch Foundation money in academia seemingly teamed up to attack the author of a book that's very critical of, of that very network. The Kochs themselves have, have done something similar in the past. I mean, Jane Mayer, who was you know, really instrumental in kind of defining the, the Kochs for, for the larger populace, the, the Kochs actually personally had her tracked for a while, and tr- they tried to discredit her in terms of accusing her of plagiarism, which was not at all true. Um, so, so I mean, this is the kind of bullying tactic that uh, the network has used before and will probably continue to use. Bruce Bartlett, the uh, former Republican uh, turned renegade, uh, told me once that he met Koch about 40 years ago uh, and said uh, this was a campaign of, of 40 years or more. Um, so here we are as it's coming to fruition. But uh, this really is, has been a longstanding strategy of, of him and his uh, associates, right, of cultivating this academic network of, uh, of experts and institutes. And this really goes deep. Yeah, yeah, and I, I would say, sure, at, at least 40 years. Um, in, in the 70s, uh, you had the Kochs kind of gathering uh, other wealthy conservatives and sort of strategizing for how to change social discourse of America. And, and what happened was, was Charles Koch and, and one of his chief allies, perhaps his top ally, um, Richard Fink, devised what they called the structure of social change in the late 70s. So that's just a strategy for changing America, you know, tilting it towards the libertarian mindset over time. So at the very root of that structure of social change was funding higher education programs, uh, changing young, impressionable minds, opening them up to this sort of radical, far-right, free market uh, above all else uh, sort of mindset. Um, and so what they did was they began funding universities, courses, professors, uh, grad student fellowships, lecture series, summer programs, and, and ultimately um, many, many free market centers, on-campus centers themselves that they would provide the seed money for. So that's kind of the very beginning of their social change. Uh, from there, we have, we have think tanks that are sort of outside universities who will take kind of university research that favors the Koch's uh, business models and, and sort of free market economics, turn those into policy proposals that then, and the third step, social welfare groups, 
uh, otherwise known as you know, Americans for Prosperity, kind of these astroturf sort of fake grassroots organizations that are political agitators, will take those policies and sort of push them on the American people and on, on politicians. Now, when I tried to click on the, click on the link for uh, the strategy for social change, uh, I got a bad back-end message. I couldn't read the document. But what's that thing like? Uh, what, what, what's, the, what's it all about? It's pretty short. It's, uh, it's pretty much what I just described. But, you know, it's, just, it's this, this three-step plan that was introduced to a lot of uh, Charles Koch's uh, key allies in the late 70s that I think they've largely stuck to. So, you know, you have university funding at step one, you've got think tanks at step two, and you have political or social welfare groups at step three. But they've actually expanded that to, to the fourth step, which, which I think Americans are most familiar with, which is, um, you know, direct political spending, you know, funding actual campaigns of politicians themselves. So once they get into power, um, they're not only beholden to the Koch kind of network for helping them achieve, uh, you know, their political positions, but they're also more kind of open and they have an ear towards these think tanks uh, that are, that are, you know, proposing policy proposals for them and the social welfare groups that are pushing those proposals on them as, as legislators. They also have a ready cadre of uh, Koch-funded uh, experts to uh, draw upon, right? Exactly, yeah. I mean, some... So when, when you have these, these, whether they're professors who are at universities who have been living on the Coke dime, essentially, or you have, you have fellow scholars at think tanks like the Cato Institute or the American Enterprise Institute, um, yeah, these, these, these scholars will provide this fodder for legislators to, to sort of cite in their bills, to, to write bills around. Um, and so it's hard for the general public to distinguish between what one might call a more kind of mainstream academic research and this sort of far-right uh, corporate Koch-funded research. One of your pieces uh, for Alternet, you, uh, you, they, they have a playbook, right? You, just, you have a six-step uh, program to how to set up a, a free market think tank at your university. Uh, give us a story. What, how do they go about this? Sure. Uh, and so, you know, I, I devised this, this yeah, so-called playbook based on secret recordings that came from a 2016 conference uh, of the Association of Private Enterprise Education. And that's an academic conference that is largely sponsored by Charles Koch or the, the Koch Institute or Koch Industries, whichever sort of Koch entity uh, of the year decides to do it. Um, and what, what, what it entails is a lot of, kind of academics who are on Koch grants, uh, think tank scholars, business representatives, and officials from the Charles Koch Foundation itself will meet and talk about strategies for how to start free market centers, how to take over your university economics department. Uh, and it also is kind of a meet and greet for prospective center directors uh, who come to meet uh, very wealthy conservatives who will have their checkbooks uh, ready. So uh, it's a very valuable uh, annual event for, for this crowd. So the, you know, the first, the first uh, step to starting your center is literally just, just starting something or taking over some kind of a dormant center itself. Um, and a center can really just be one professor or a couple faculty. It doesn't have to be a lot of people. Now, do people start this in their own initiative before they even get Coke funding? They just hope to, hope to get that? Exactly. That's kind of that's usually what I what I've taken from these these meetings and, and the transcripts is that's usually the strategy. You start first, and you have to kind of inflate the reputation of what you've got. And once you get to a certain level, um, then you you start talking to donors and you try to pull in the money. So um, you start by you can create a panel of research fellows, um, just kind of friends in your in your academic network. It's largely symbolic. Um, you know, you do some media around it. 
uh, and then in the, you know, the second step, you create an advisory board. And so that's, you know, other kind of Coke-funded academics or people you know in the free market academic realm. Um, again, it's, it's not a terribly active board, but it's just kind of, you know, sort of a safety net for your organization if it, if it comes across any, any hurdles. And then, and then it's kind of time to, uh, to tr try to bring in the private donations. So like I said, you can go to this conference every year, uh, where, you know, where you're going you're gonna to meet a lot of these big donors, maybe even the Kochs themselves, um, and you can lean on the Koch Foundation uh, staff to uh, sort of try to uh, at least convince them uh, whether to fund your, your uh, organization or, or to reach out to them and ask them, are there other wealthy friends of yours who might be willing to throw in a million or two here to get my, get my center really up and running full steam? I'm speaking with the journalist Alex Koch, author of several pieces on Alternet about the Koch academic empire. We've been talking about the Kochs, but do they have peers in this business, or are they really first among equals, or how's, it, how's that? Yeah, well, they do. They're, they're starting to have more and more peers. Um, one of the biggest ones lately is John Schnatter, who's the CEO of Papa John's Pizza. He, um, he helped them. He co-founded, uh, I believe, three free market centers in the last few years in, in Kentucky. So he will often put in... Maybe t actually, Schnatter will put in, in in these three cases about two thirds of the seed money. Uh, say, for example, it's a it's a five million dollar five year grant um, to sort of found the center and get it going and fund a few professors, et cetera. So Schnatter will put in you know maybe three million, and the Cokes will put in two million, uh, and they'll call it the Schnatter Center for Free Enterprise or something like that. Um, and so that's that's a way that the Cokes harness their very deep pocketed network of friends to kind of spread their model around the country uh, even farther than they could do just on their own. You have a list of uh, about 20 or 25 of these free market think tanks at universities across the country. Uh, a lot of these universities that uh, where these think tanks are are not exactly household names. Uh, do they target places that are looking for attention and money? You know, I think they, they pretty much target every, everyone. Um, you know, yes, there, there are a lot, of, a lot of these schools that many folks haven't heard of. They're, they're small colleges, uh, but they also, I mean, some of their, their most influential and longest-standing centers are at places like Florida State University, um, George Mason University, which, uh, you know, some have, have labeled Coke U, uh, is the largest recipient of, of the Coke funds. So um, that's certainly a well-known university, but you're right. I mean, it really runs the gamut uh, from small, small colleges uh, all the way up to very large uh, public universities. And how do these think tanks and uh, such get along with the the larger university or college and uh, you know the administration and faculty? Are they happy to have these Coke people on campus? Yeah, I mean it, it really depends. Um, I mean, first of all, usually when when there's a sort of this a center in the works, you'll get a lot of faculty pushback. There'll be a faculty senate of some kind that will, you know, be kind of concerned that all this ideological political money is coming into the the school. Um, they'll do some kind of protest, but ultimately it's usually up to the administrators who are very, very often just eager to take any kind of money whatsoever because the schools we're seeing more and more are strapped for cash, uh, especially the public schools with budget cuts post-recession, et cetera. Um, they're happy to take any any form of, of support uh, to, to create more classes, more buzz around the department, et cetera. But, um, you know, one of the tactics that these professors talked about at this conference, the, the Appy conference, was, um, you know, quote-unquote, uh, being the 800-pound gorilla on campus. Um, it's actually encouraged to, to be a bully, you know, what, because once, you, once you're, uh, say, you're, you're a budding free market center director and you, you're, you've just gotten a $2 million grant from the Charles Koch Foundation, you can wield that over your fellow professors and say, look, uh, you know, my, my, my far-right laissez-faire economics theories are going to take front and center in the department now because I'm the one who's bringing in the cash and you're not. So that's actually encouraged uh, among this community. 
In the attacks on Nancy McLean, I was struck by the tone that some of them took. They felt persecuted, and you know, they're the the, the renegades who are being uh, uh, mistreated by you know the dominant left or whatever. And you know, they seem to to, to like to play the role of the victim in this. Is, is this a standard strategy for this group? Yeah, that's it, that's that's the strategy exactly. Um, that's how they justify what they're doing, taking uh, this private coke industry's largely fossil fuel derived money and and bringing it into sort of you know, general university curricula because what they feel like is that the conservative voices on universities are being drowned out by liberal voices now that may be true in terms of uh the sort of bent of, of higher education in general but there are reasons for that you know i think some of their ideas you know their far-right ideas are just simply not very popular and a lot of times they often don't really check out academically um, because when you're in university settings, you, know, you have peer review processes, you have mainstream conferences and things like that. So I think there is a reason why their far-right ideas are marginalized, and that's because they're simply not very popular. But what they're trying to do is kind of muscle their way into academia over time, over years and over decades, and kind of push the, the far-right into the mainstream. Well, it's interesting that you know they take this public stance of uh, being persecuted, but uh, privately they talk about being the 800-pound gorilla. Yeah, I think they kind of think they got to fight their way out of the sort of liberal jungle or something like that. It's um, it's it's really kind of an ideology in itself, I think. And from having watched these guys closely, um, any advice on uh, how to fight them? Yeah, um, well, so there's a few steps I didn't mention, uh, and I'll just briefly go over them. But one of the steps for, for maintaining your center is preserving donor intent. And, and, and so these contracts that the Charles Koch Foundation writes up uh, are very very pinpointed towards exactly what they want the money to be used for. And every year they can reevaluate. So um, what, what, what a lot of people are doing, especially this group called Uncoke My Campus, it's, it's kind of an activist uh, nonprofit that researches this type of thing on campus, um, is they, they submit public records requests. So if, if it's a public university, you can usually eventually get the memorandum of, of understanding that was drawn up between the, say, the Economics Department of Florida State and the Charles Koch Foundation. And you can see just how um, how much control the university is giving this, this private foundation, and then you can put it under public scrutiny, and often they'll have to sort of change some of those stipulations that are very strict and give the Koch Foundation some power. So that's one way to expose what's going on. Unfortunately, at private universities, uh, you're, you're pretty much out of luck with that. But the other step is, is just doing research, connecting with other people, concerned people, and uh, making sure that your community is informed about where the money is coming from and, and the sort of history of this network. So things that I write, things that other journalists write, I hope are valuable to the general public and to university communities when they're, they're considering you know, uh, having a new Koch Center at, at, at their school. I was struck you know, in the reaction to McLean uh, that uh, these people don't seem used to being fact-checked or attacked. They have kind of an echo chamber, uh, a kind of small corner of academia that they've created for themselves. They have their own conferences, like the one I mentioned. Um, they peer review each other. They have their own journals. And, and a lot of the professors at one school, uh, say Troy University in Alabama, have been educated by other co-funded professors at, say, George Mason. And so you have a, a real kind of exchange among this, this growing group of of academics in the, in the far-right free market world. So, yeah, perhaps when they're subject to sort of outside scrutiny, they're not used to it, and they uh, get extremely defensive and, and, and want to take down and discredit anyone who's uh, challenging their ideas. That was the journalist Alex Koch. You can find the organization he mentioned that's fighting the Coke juggernaut on the web at uncokemycampus.org. All one word, and Coke is spelled K-O-C-H. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. 
My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. That was some of Money Is Not Our God by Killing Joke. Next, Brazil. Last year, President Dilma Rousseff of the left-wing Workers' Party, known by its Portuguese initials PT, was impeached on bogus charges and replaced by a deeply unpopular right-winger, Michel Temer. Rousseff, though a serious and competent leader, was never much of a politician, unlike her very popular predecessor, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. The right hated both and wanted to destroy them. They'd pretty much gotten what they wanted. Sadly for them, their chosen vehicle, Timur, is himself now under indictment for corruption, a problem that's pervasive in Brazilian politics. Alfredo Sadfilo, professor of political economy at the School for Oriental and African Studies at the University of London, has been on this show several times over the last couple of years to explain the deep political and economic crisis that's taken hold of Brazil. I'd invited him on to discuss Tamer's legal troubles, but then on Wednesday, July 12th, Lula was sentenced to almost 10 years in prison, also in corruption charges. Since this interview was recorded the day before the sentencing, I asked Saad Filo to comment on it. Here's what he said. The inevitable has finally happened. The charade of the Lava Hato, car wash corruption investigations, is coming to its conclusion. No one is in favor of corruption, and no one can be against prosecuting corrupt politicians. But Lava Hato, the biggest corruption investigation in history, far exceeding the Italian clean hands operation of the early 90s, was always about persecuting the Brazilian Workers' Party and putting its leaders and largest donors in jail. The ultimate prize was always going to be former President Lula. Judge Sergio Moro has chased after Lula with the utmost determination. He arrested numerous politicians and businessmen looking for plea bargains, a technique he learned from the U.S. Justice Department. But the only plea bargains he would accept would be those incriminating the PT. Do this or stay in jail indefinitely. The outcome is that Lula was found guilty on the basis of no proof at all, other than the depositions of people already in prison and seeking a way out. This is the sum total of the case. Lula is now guilty. If he does not appeal, he goes to jail for nine and a half years. If he appeals and loses, he may or may not go to jail, but he becomes automatically unable to run for elections. And Lula is the natural candidate of the Workers' Party in 2018, and today he has the highest poll ratings by far. This sentence is a political maneuver. And Judge Moro will not be around to bear the consequences. He has applied for leave to move to the USA for at least one year. Job done. Goodbye. And now here's Alfredo Sadfilo with more. Let's start by um, detailing what the charges against Timur are before we uh, go into the larger political questions of what took us to this, uh, this situation. So w- what charges is he pre- uh, facing precisely? There are three charges against him coming from the attorney general's office. The first charge is of uh, corruption. 
uh, in Brazilian legislation. It's called passive corruption. It's the person who receives the money and provides favors in exchange for that money. The second one is uh, leading a criminal organization, meaning that he was at the top of the, uh, a group of politicians uh, and he uh, centralized resources uh, and uh, distributed resources to uh, the members of this group. And the third accusation is obstruction of uh, justice because he has attempted to present the judicial investigation into these uh, previous accusations. These are uh, originally politically aligned, but they have become bitter enemies. So the Attorney General, as part of his campaign against Temer, is sending these accusations to the Chamber of Deputies, because that's the constitutional process. The Attorney General's office has to send, well, they have to send it to the uh, Supreme uh, Court. Supreme Court sends it automatically to the Chamber of Deputies. But the Attorney General is sending them one by one, forcing them, the Chamber of Deputies, to uh, vote on three separate occasions on whether or not to prosecute the president instead of bundling the three accusations into one process and sending it to the chamber, and then there would be one vote. Now, this makes it extremely difficult for President Temer to win. He would have to win in the uh, chamber of deputies three times in a row in a case that is all the media and under intense popular scrutiny. So my personal guess is that Temer will not survive. Now, he was uh, busted uh, by a tape, right? A businessman uh, was offering him money. Yes, this is correct. Uh, one of Brazil's uh, biggest uh, businessmen, the, the brothers, chief executives of JBS, uh, a, a large conglomerate specializing in meat processing, uh, taped a conversation that he had uh, with Temer, and Temer was uh, distributing favors and uh, demanding uh, payment for those favors. What was his motive in taping it and then releasing the tape? This is, this is not very clear. And there are different explanations as to why uh, he decided to do this. The most credible explanation that I have seen in the media, but I do not know if this is uh, correct, is that JBS wants to move their operations to the United States. They want to transfer the base of the company to New York. Now, JBS is... Uh, or was originally a very small, ordinary uh, abattoir meat processing plant in, the, um, in a small state uh, in Brazil. And the company grew uh, very, very fast, largely because of loans and share purchases by uh, BNDS, the Brazilian Development Bank, uh, during the Lula administration. The Lula administration was committed to the creation of large, successful transnational uh, Brazilian uh, conglomerates, um, looking perhaps at the example of South Korea with large and successful companies around the world, one of the companies they chose to be one of what they called national champions was JBS. So the National Development Bank poured a lot of money into the company and it grew and became a very large and very successful uh, conglomerate. They purchased companies around the world and transnationalized their operations. Now, this is the company now wanting to move their operations to the United States, apparently, and, but in order to do this, uh, the speculation is that the U.S. Justice Department uh, warned the company that they had to sort out their situation in Brazil uh, and resolve their problems uh, of, and the, the, resolve the rumors that the company had engaged in corrupt practices in Brazil 
uh, before they were allowed to transfer to the U.S., otherwise they would become vulnerable to U.S. law, and the, the situation for the company could become uh, much more serious. So this is one of the reasons why they may have done this. They signed an agreement with the federal police. They revealed a list of 1,800 politicians that had received cash from JBS in order to finance their political campaigns. 1,800 politicians? That's a remarkable number. That, this is an enormous number at, at all levels, from the highest level in the republic down to uh, county levels. They provided this list uh, as part of their agreement uh, with the justice system. The agreement was accepted by the federal police and by the Supreme Court, and the tapes were part of this uh, agreement. So they provided even that to the federal police. And then there goes uh, Michel Temer, the president of the republic, for the first time in the history of Brazil, a country where corruption is notoriously present in the political system, but for the first time you have a sitting president accused of uh, corruption in this way, being indicted for corruption by the Attorney General's office. In the U.S., a president has to be removed from office before he can face criminal charges. Uh, could he uh, be prosecuted under criminal law without uh, being removed from office? No, he would be removed from office. So the procedure is the uh, um, federal police passes a charge to the attorney general. Attorney general sends it to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court immediately and automatically accepts the, the charge, sends it to the Chamber of Deputies. Now, the Chamber of Deputies has to vote. It's uh, a majority vote on whether or not to accept uh, the charge. At the moment, a committee in the Chamber of Deputies with 66 uh, members is going to provide a first vote on this uh, matter. But however they vote, and the speculation is that the vote comes in, in the next few days, the speculation is that Temer is going to lose the vote in the committee. But whether he wins or loses, it doesn't matter. The vote goes to the, to the chamber as a whole with 513 uh, deputies. The media has been uh, trying to gauge the support uh, of the deputies, but most of them, the majority, are refusing to declare uh, their position, which probably means that they're hedging their bets or that they are definitely going to vote against uh, Temer. Uh, if they vote against Temer, then he has to step down while the investigations proceed, and then the Speaker of the Chamber becomes the President uh, of Brazil. Almost every one of those 513 deputies is uh, up to his ears in corruption as well, right? A very large number of those deputies are in the JBS list, and that is a list of 1,800 coming from one single company. And there will be many other companies that probably could provide uh, similar lists of names. So, yes, it, it, is a very, it is a bizarre case of a large number of deputies, many under indictment for other accusations of corruption, voting on this particular case. Now, Tamir, of course, is deeply unpopular, uh, and he replaced uh, Dilma Rousseff uh, because she was driven from office on corruption charges. So the whole system is in deep disrepute, right? Brazil is going through a, a political crisis without precedent uh, in the history of, of the country. There's absolutely no uh, parallel uh, situation in the history of Brazil, which is a country that is politically unstable, has always been politically unstable. Now, President Rousseff was uh, impeached. There was never any accusation against her of personal enrichment uh, or corruption. She today is recognized as 
perhaps the most honest politician in the Republic, but she was uh, removed from office by a group of people uh, around them uh, who wanted to protect themselves against the ongoing investigations of corruption uh, taking place, being led by the Federal Police and the Attorney General's office. So Dilma Rousseff refused to protect those politicians. Then they found an excuse, a technicality, and overthrew her, impeached her. Now, Temer then comes into office and is unable to stop the investigations, and in fact, he is involved in them and is now quite possibly going to be overthrown by those corruption investigations, uh, too. It is an absolutely bizarre case. The next element of this unbelievable confusion is that the Speaker of the Chamber of Deputies, who will become the next president, who is already considering his economic policies and already uh, planning the distribution of ministries in his incoming administration, this man is also accused of corruption. And there's a number of accusations and charges against him. So having the Speaker of the Chamber replacing Michel Temer is absolutely not going to resolve the problem. In fact, it's going to make it worse because this is a man with an even lower political stature than Michel Temer, even less able to command the support of Congress and of society as a whole. So the political crisis in Brazil is very likely uh, going to become worse uh, before it gets any better. I'm speaking with Alfredo Sadfilo, who is a professor of political economy at uh, the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. The entire political class really is right under a, a very dark cloud. Uh, it is, yes, absolutely it is showing or suggesting that this is a systemic problem. A corruption is the way in which the Brazilian political system functions. Now, this has been said for some time it, it already in very abstract uh, tones, but we can now see what it means in practice. There are individuals who take money for their own use, and then they become rich. And there are political parties, most political parties, not all of them, but most political parties, and there's a there's a very large number of political parties in Brazil, anything between 30 or 40 political parties, that need uh, money coming from corrupt sources in order to survive, in order to campaign on a very large democracy, very expensive elections. So it is not possible uh, to win elections without getting somehow tangled up in illegal uh, uses of, of, of money. It is a political system that needs reform. But once again, the group around Michel Temer prevented President Dilma Rousseff from uh, reforming the political system. They absolutely vetoed every initiative of the previous administration because they knew they were, they were going to lose out uh, if there were serious political reform uh, in the country. Now, the markets were coming to like Temer. I guess they liked him all along, but uh, the, the, there was a, a pension reform uh, on tap. What was he trying to accomplish with, uh, with his presidency? Uh, Michel Temer had three jobs to, to do, and, and the media and uh, the financial system are very clear about this. They would support him until the delivery of those three things. The first one he did deliver. It was a constitutional amendment of freezing fiscal spending for, in real terms for the next 20 years. This has passed in the first few weeks of the Temen administration. It is a monstrosity. It is absurd. Uh, Brazilian society has uh, numerous demands. It's a poor country. It's a country that, where the population is aging uh, very rapidly. 
then it is impossible to maintain social spending within the limits that they are at the moment only being corrected by inflation. But this was the constitutional amendment that was passed. Ventema had two other jobs. One, uh, as you mentioned, was the reform of social security. The allegations that come from finance, that come from the mainstream media, that come from neoliberal uh, economists, is that social security in Brazil is too expensive, it is unaffordable, and it needs to be cut back. So Temer has proposed a reform of social security that seriously reduces social rights, and that is in Congress with a possibility of passing. And the third one is the reform of labor law. And the reform of labor law is extraordinarily uh, large. It deals with more than 100 pieces of legislation, essentially liberalizing the labor market in a country that is already poor and with a very, very informalized uh, economy. This is, again, in Congress right now, and it may or may not pass. It is doubtful. If the administration disintegrates, then those reforms may not pass. But if they do not pass, then Tema is useless from the point of view of large capital in Brazil. And if it does pass, then he becomes useless because he has already done his job. So he is in this uh, invidious position uh, where he cannot win. And I think he wasn't expecting that when he became president uh, in 2016. But this is his, his situation now. He was at the G20 meeting recently, right? And people treated him as a, a non-entity. Oh, he was, yes. And that, that was uh, reported in the Brazilian media, that no one wanted to talk to him. He had no bilateral meetings at the G20 and had to fly home early in order to try and save his own administration. <laughs> it's funny he and Trump didn't bond on their outsiderhood or something. <laughs> if big capital is pretty much done with him, did they have any other agent who could uh, be a successor uh, to uh, pursue what is, the way you describe it, must be a very unpopular agenda? It is a very unpopular agenda, uh, and Temer personally is, is highly unpopular, uh, as you mentioned. The surprising answer is no. There are no viable candidates for the presidential elections that uh, should take place in October 2018 uh, for the right. They simply do not have a candidate. The, the right has not agglomerated around anyone at the moment, and they have tried. They have floated a very large number of names. PSDB, the Social Democratic Party, is hopelessly split between three different factions, and they absolutely cannot tolerate uh, one another. Uh, the other political parties of the right are also split, and they do not have a leader of any prominence uh, in the country. The media has floated the names of different hopefuls, the uh, mayor of Sao Paulo, who has a profile somewhat similar to the profile of Donald Trump, a successful uh, businessman with a big personality that promises to resolve problems. But he, as a mayor of Sao Paulo, has been a failure. So he, the possibility that this man could win a national election is now very low. They've tried the names of uh, TV presenters, the names of singers. Nothing seems to work uh, for the political right. It doesn't mean that the situation for the left is any better. The only viable name, really, that the left has at the moment is the name of uh, former President uh, Lula. Now, Lula is over 70 years old. He has already served for eight years. And he's struggling at the moment with accusations of corruption again, 
being chased by a judge that seems to be determined to find Lula guilty, uh, whatever the, the case may be, uh, and this will be decided possibly later this week. But if Lula can be a candidate, if he's not in prison, if he has not been uh, found guilty uh, in this case and, the, and then rendered ineligible, then he might be a viable candidate for the left. He's uh, ahead in the opinion polls. But it doesn't mean he could win an election or form an administration that is in any way viable because the resistance against him is now very, very strong. So the left also has a problem, which is, again, a reflection of a political crisis with no clear prospect of resolution. Uh, Brazil is in a very, very difficult moment, historically speaking. This is a moment of trauma for the country that is unlikely to be uh, resolved easily or forgotten for, for decades to come. Now, what happened? The Lula years, Brazil was pro looked to be prosperous. Uh, poverty was going down. Uh, there was a successful social program, lifting a lot of people out of poverty. Uh, and now the country is an economic and political wreck. So how do we get from point A to point B? <laughs> this, is, this is a very difficult question, and there are uh, different uh, explanations for this, of course. But you're absolutely right. Brazil was very successful economically, politically, and in, in its international relations uh, under Lula and in the first few years of Dilma Rousseff. Uh, Dilma Rousseff was elected as Lula's successor. Lula chose her personally. Uh, he campaigned for her. She had never been elected to public office before, Became was elected president in 2010 after eight years of Lula. And she started her administration very successfully. Now, Dilma Rousseff... There were two problems, I think, with her administration. The problem number one is that she was not a politician. She is a very, very good, very, very competent manager, but she was not a politician, and she did not have time for politicians. Now, Brazilian governments have to run on coalitions because the president is elected in, in a system similar to the French system in a two-round election. So you, when you are elected president, you have an enormous number of votes behind you. But Congress is elected under a political system that favors fragmentation. So at the moment, there are 28 political parties with representation in Congress. And there is no prospect under current electoral law that any party could have more than 20% or so of the seats in Congress. So you must... As president, with a huge amount of legitimacy, you can only govern by making very large coalitions, uh, usually with uh, 8, 10, 15 political parties, in order to build a solid majority. Dilma Rousseff was not good at that. She would not talk to politicians, and she would not talk to businessmen either. So gradually, this political system that functions on the basis of the exchanges of favors, that, this political system became alienated from Dilma Rousseff. That was one problem. The other problem that the administration had was that they took a very strong line against the traditional neoliberal policymaking uh, in Brazil. Dilma Rousseff wanted to change things, and she was the most left-wing president Brazil has had in, in 50 years. To the left of Lula. Far to the left of Lula, yes, absolutely. Lula never even pretended to be on the left. Uh, Dilma Rousseff, personally, yes. There's no doubt about that. So she, she moved to, to change the uh, system of road concessions, limiting the profitability of the, the, the companies that bought those road concessions. That created a big problem with capital. Then she changed the, the rules for 
how much the electricity generating companies could charge, and that created an enormous problem with companies accusing the government of a power grab and an economic, uh, economically kidnapping the future profit of those companies. It was a huge problem for them. Dilma Rousseff's government reduced interest rates, um, the central bank cut uh, interest rates very dramatically. Now, Brazil traditionally for two decades now has been one of the countries in the world with the highest level of interest rates. And when the government did that, thinking that they would favor domestic capital and domestic industry, what actually happened is that they forgot, they didn't realize, they didn't know that Brazilian industrial capital is heavily invested in financial markets. That is how they make most of their profits. So cutting interest rates hurt industrial capital instead of favoring them. And then they moved into the opposition too. So gradually, the Rousseff administration alienated everybody. And when the economy started to go wrong in 2011, 2012, 2013, and eventually moved into a fully-fledged capital strike, an investment strike, the economy started contracting, and then the administration decided that, oops, they had done something wrong, let us bring capital on board again. So they adopted neoliberal macroeconomic policies. In doing this, they did not gain the confidence of capital, but they lost the workers too. So the administration finished um, itself, imploded in 2015-2016 by alienating every single possible source of support uh, that they could have had. They ended up with very, very low approval ratings uh, and an impeachment process that the left, uh, the organized left, was unable to stop, completely unable to stop. I'm speaking with Alfredo Sadfilo, who is a professor of political economy at the, the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. And Brazil also suffered from the collapse of the commodity boom, right? They did. They suffered from the collapse of the commodity boom. Then they suffered from the economic slowdown in China. China has become Brazil's largest trading partner. And then they suffered from quantitative easing every time the United States, the European Central Bank and, and the Japanese Central Bank had a round of quantitative easing, capital flew out of those uh, large economies and went to developing countries. And Brazil received a huge amount of capital in the past four, five, six years. And that raised the uh, Brazilian uh, currency to a completely unrealistic level and made domestic industry uncompetitive. So the current account went into a big deficit. The country lost industry, lost jobs. And that was, again, a huge problem that the Rousseff administration was unable to address. So this sounds like a mess that few other countries in the world can rival. Is there a way out of it? This comprehensive political and economic crisis it just seems rather hopeless. Is that uh, too glum? No, it is not too glum. It, the expectation of the political right was that with the removal of Dilma Rousseff, the expectations of business would improve and foreign capital would come, uh, industrial capital would come into Brazil. So you would have domestic investment and you would have foreign investment uh, coming into the country too. This hasn't happened. The economy at the moment has no source of uh, demand. Consumption is heavily depressed. There are 15 million unemployed people uh, in Brazil, about 13, 14, 15 percent uh, unemployment. The government is in a fiscal crisis, so it's not spending uh, anything. Business is not spending because there is no uh, demand. The only thing that could push the economy or pull the economy out of this hole is uh, exports. 
but the global economy is not being favorable at the moment. So Brazil is, uh, after the economy contracting by almost 4% for two years in a row, so GDP per capita is back to the level it, it had in 2004, the economy is now stagnant at the bottom of the cycle and completely flat. Unless something happens on that front, Brazil will continue to grow very little, if it will grow at all, for the um, foreseeable future. And on the political front, without the emergence of a political leader who can aggregate the country in some form and heal the, the wounds of, this, uh, of the past three, four, five years that have been incredibly bruising for all sides, uh, in the political uh, spectrum, again, there is no prospect of construction of any form of, of social uh, consensus, any form of agreed platform on which you can have a civilized debate. There is no civilized political debate in Brazil uh, at the moment. It's, it's a deeply divided country, as I have never seen in my life. This is not common at all in Brazilian political history. So from both sides, the economic and the political side, it's very difficult to see how Brazil... Uh, is going to overcome these crises, and very easy to see the continuation of this uh, political and economic impasse. I would like to be optimistic. I, I just ca cannot be at the moment. 40 or 50 years ago, in a situation like this, we would be talking about the possibility of the army stepping in. Is that even a remote possibility at this point? I think not. The army has been very, very careful to, be, to keep itself outside of politics. Uh, and there are several reasons for this. In 1964, it was a context of Cold War, uh, where the army had a, a commitment to the West and a commitment to the political right. Uh, it was also a moment when after there were many years of articulation between sec sectors of the army and sectors of uh, domestic capital with a project for national development that they implemented through a military coup. Today, there is no project for development. And the army that continues to be in the majority aligned with the political right is also a nationalist force. One of the biggest worries of the Brazilian army is the denationalization of the economy because that prevents any conception of nation and any form of organized national defense. And Brazil used to have a very uh, substantial, for a developing country, very substantial weapons industry, for example. That has also been disarticulated recently. So the paradox from the point of view of neoliberalism is that neoliberalism is an ideology of the right, but it is also heavily internationalizing. And the army is on the political right, but it is a nationalist force that is now associated with the left. So paradoxically, the political party that is that has perhaps the most extensive contacts in the army is the Communist Party of Brazil. One of the most prominent figures of this party was Minister of Defense, very able Minister of Defense during the Lula administration. So the army at the moment is uh, paralyzed. They also know, the high echelons in the army know, that they do not have any prospect of resolving the crisis. You put the institution in the, in the vortex of a political crisis without a program is a recipe for institutional failure, and they do not want to do that. So the prospect for military coup is minute unless the country completely disintegrates uh, into disorder, but that's not on the cards at the moment. That outcome is unlikely. You, you don't see complete collapse and disintegration, just sort of muddling through uh, in this, this crisis-bound but uh, unresolvable way? There are no political groupings with enough force 
to try and push through a resolution. The Brazilian left is, is heavily divided because of the inheritance of the PT. A big part of the Brazilian left is still big. Um, they have maybe about 30% uh, of the vote, relatively solid uh, preference. They are divided by the inheritance of the PT. A large number who believe that the experience of the PT administration was very positive, and a large number who believe that the PT betrayed the, the left itself. Until they can come to terms and resolve this dilemma in some form, and it could take one generation or two to resolve this problem, then the left will find it very difficult to act um, in a concerted way. What has facilitated the convergence on the, uh, of, of the left and the recovery of the left is that the Temen administration is so bad, so unpopular, so transparently clear that Brazil has been hijacked by a conspiracy of thieves that then the left can coalesce and fight together against this administration and that can have popular support. And this was growing. Uh, there was a general strike in the country, the biggest strike in the history of Brazil. Uh, very difficult to know how many millions of workers uh, down their tools on the 28th of April. That was very successful. But then the resistance lost uh, traction. There was another uh, attempt at a general strike at the end of June, but it failed. It was a smaller mobilization than the previous one. Now the left is awaiting awaiting for a resolution of the Tema case in the Chamber of Deputies, awaiting for the judgment of uh, former President Lula uh, in the coming days. But at the moment, trying to accumulate forces, but unable to mount a challenge to the state. And the political right is completely disorganized. The mass movements of the political right that emerged in the past few years have largely disappeared. So in this uh, scenario where no one has enough force to destabilize anything, it's unlikely that the country would disintegrate. But it is perfectly possible to continue to be in this impasse for many months to come until something unpredictable happens to move uh, the country out of the hole uh, again. But I have no idea what that might be. That was Alfredo Sadfilo, a professor of political economy at the School for Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. As an antidote to all that gloom, let's go out with this bit of early 90s New Zealand indie pop. A bit of Some Ones from the Clean's debut album. Till next week, bye. (laughs) 